current thing with me, Nick Dixon. We are back after the Christmas break and we have yet another excellent guest, the demographer and author of very interesting books, including Tomorrow's People and The Human Tide. It is Dr. Paul Morland. Thanks so much for doing the show, Paul. Hello. Uh, I've got so many questions about your work. I thought I'd kick off with this one. You obviously focus on declining birth rates and fertility and sort of aging population, underpopulation. The conventional wisdom in my lifetime has always been that we're overpopulated and it always seems to be tied to climate change doom. And the elites seem to feel that we're overpopulated. And that may be changing a little bit now because Japan's so obviously having a problem and other countries. But you had this thing like Prince Philip talked about wanting to come back as a virus, maybe he was joking. You have Stanley Johnson, former prime minister's father, thinking Britain should be 10 to 15 million people. So my question is, and this sort of trickled down to the ordinary person where the assumption is we're overpopulated in the world. So my, my question is, is that now changing among the sort of global or at least Western elites? And if not, why not? Is it ignorance on their part? Is it, does it suit their political agenda? Or is it still up for debate and they might be right and you're wrong? Well, let's just start with Prince Philip, uh, blessed memory, and uh, Stanley Johnson. I think they both produced a fair number of children. I Certainly Prince Philip had four children and uh, Stanley Johnson, I don't know, had at least four, I think. So uh, I think some consistency between what you preach and your action is always a, a good thing. Um, secondly, conventional wisdom almost always lags reality. So it's not surprising. I don't see some big conspiracy theory here, but it's not surprising that people are invested with the ideologies or the beliefs or the conventional wisdoms of a previous age. And it's true that if we go back to the 1960s and 70s, what was happening was not an enormous baby boom globally. We've always had lots of children. Uh, lots of women in the 60s and 70s were in countries where there was very little birth control, very little contraception. That's changed. Family sizes have always been in the sort of five, six, seven uh, area as a norm. But what changed, what was changing then and has changed rapidly since, is a fall in the fertility, in the mortality rate, and particularly of children. So historical societies, as many as two out of three children didn't make it to the age where they could procreate themselves. When that changes, even if you're not having more kids, you have a baby boom. And that's what was really happening in the 60s and 70s and got a lot of people very concerned, people like Paul Ehrlich, who wrote famously The Population Bomb. And so um, that is the lag between uh, reality and perception. So I think a lot of people are just stuck in the past. Now, what's happened since then is infant mortality rates have continued to come down. But in more of the more of the world, they're so low that further falls don't make much demographic difference. I mean, if you're losing two children before the age of one per thousand, as in Japan, then a fall to 1.5 or one is not. We're already at that very low infant mortality rate where further falls won't make any difference. What's changed is that the birth rates have gone down, the fertility rates have gone down in so many countries. Um, so in a country like India today, the fertility rate is rapidly dropping um, in the direction of two. China, we all know, had a one-child policy. They lifted it, and they're still... It's very controversial what the fertility rate is in China, but there's no doubt it's well, well below one uh, and a half. And Korea famously is 0.8. The interesting thing is, in the past... Poor countries had high fertility rates, but even that's changing. Countries like India, countries like Thailand. So something's happening, and we can perhaps discuss what, which is leading to a very wide-scale fall in the fertility rates across the world. And that takes time to feed through to falling populations for a technical reason, which I'll state briefly, which is that if you've got if you had a classic population expansion as much of the world, you've got a typical pyramid. And then the women in that age group of, of childbearing women start having very small families. There are so many of those women because of previous population expansion that the population keeps growing. And there are so few old people at the top of the pyramid dying. So many births, few deaths, and the population keeps growing. But that can only go on for so long. And in Britain, for example, we've had below replacement fertility rates since the 1970s. 
but we still just about have more births than deaths. That's going to end in the next few years. So partly it's people have the wrong impression because there's a lag in in reality uh, and perception, and they're stuck in the mindset of 30, 40, 50 years ago. And partly it's because of demographic momentum, meaning long after you've got sub-replacement fertility, you start to feel a decline first in the workforce and then the population as a whole. I think there is a third element which you've raised, which is environmentalism, but that's slightly different. That's where people are not necessarily saying the population is growing and growing, but that it, it would be a good thing if it was shrinking. And I, I've got two basic responses to that, because that has two aspects. One aspect is it's a terrible world. The world's on fire. How can we possibly bring children into this world? And to that, my reaction is it's the best world we've ever had. And if we're crazy to bring children into this world with its very high rates of nutrition, with its very low rates of uh, infant mortality, with its very low rates of death from natural disasters. If today's world is so bloody awful that we shouldn't be bringing kids in, then our parents were practically criminals to have us. And our grandparents must have been out of their minds. And every previous generation who had children in eras of poverty, widespread poverty and uh, crises in the past um, were culpable. Well, I don't believe that. I think, the, And I think this is the best time to, ha to have children. Um, and we can perhaps go back to that. The second aspect of that argument is if I have a child, that child will be an emitter and that child will contribute to the um, global emissions. I think there are two responses to that. The first is um, if we believe, and never mind net zero, if we believe that the technologies are going to move fast, a child born today should have fairly few emissions in 20 years' time. And small children don't make much difference. Uh, they don't drive their own cars. They don't live in their own houses. Um, a child, I mean, the work's been done. People's emissions go up when they become late teens, early 20s. And in 18 to 20 years' time, the technology should be delivering us much lower emissions per capita. But the other argument, and I think this is crucial, is that if you want to go on consuming, you expect someone to deliver petrol to the petrol station. You expect someone to fix your tap. You expect someone to produce the food. All the things we do in life, which consume effectively products and services, but effectively the labor of others. If you say, I'm going to carry on consuming all this stuff and eating and drinking and traveling, even leading a modest life, but I'm not prepared to produce the labor which I will consume, you're just calling on someone else to do that. And what that means very often is people move from low emissions countries to high emissions countries. So you actually not even, even if you did think that your children were going to contribute emissions, unless you go and live in a cave, you're not really helping the environment by not having children. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about that later. Actually, there's loads in there. I just wanted to ask first, if the population does get too low, and Elon Musk is a sort of exception amongst the, the ultra-wealthy who talks about this a lot. He says it's pretty much down to whether you're pro-human versus pro-extinction at this point. And he's, he talks about the danger of not having enough people to run our economies. Is the danger more this care home economy you've spoken about in Japan, where you end up with just something like two productive people for every one old person or something like that, I think? Or is it that we simply don't have enough people to maintain the infrastructure? What's the main danger? Is it all of them? I think it's twofold. First of all, that as the population declines, you get an inverted population pyramid, which means the care home economy that you've mentioned. And it means um, a, a dependency ratio problem. So uh, let me give you one statistic. When Japan got to 100 million people in the 1960s, it had nearly six workers, people aged 20 to 65, for everybody over 65, roughly five or six to one. When it gets back down to 100 million in the 2040s, it's going to have barely one for one. So it's very difficult to run an economy when one person in the workplace has to support one person in retirement. <clears throat> whether that's done through, whether you think of it financially through the tax system or the healthcare system or the old, old age care, the, the population gets very skewed. And as you get fewer and fewer workers relative to the overall population, because you've got such growth in the older age, then you have an economy that's very difficult to run. You have labor shortages um, and you also have a government that struggles 
with its finances. Too few taxpayers, too many people having very intense use of public services like the health service and pensions. So that's the, the inverted aid pyramid is one aspect. But imagine that wasn't a problem, that you could just keep the pyramid, but somehow shrink it, which you can't do, by the way. And we could nicely get down to 15 or 10 million people in Britain, um, as some people would think it was nice. I think that's just a bad thing. I think there are societies and cultures and civilizations which have grown up um, and have managed to produce reasonably sized populations. And a lot of these will simply disappear if they have perpetual sub-replacement fertility rate. I mean, I can't tell you what the population of Jamaica is. It's quite small. But it's had a long period of very, very low fertility rates. So the Jamaicans and the Koreans will cease to be feasible, even if they shrunk as uh, without the aging problem. They became smaller and smaller populations. Those cultures are going to shrivel. And I think human life is a positive thing. Now, that doesn't mean I think I I want hundreds of billions of people streaming around the world. But the world can support 8, 10, 12 billion people. Our technology is getting better and better and more and more able to do that. And I tend to think human life is a good thing. I think that's an argument, a philosophical argument, which we can go into, it will never be resolved philosophically. But I think if you tend to think that life is a good thing, and if you like people, and if you're appreciative of the fact that you're on this planet for 70, 80, 90 years, then you shouldn't wish non-existence on others, and you should celebrate human life. And I could certainly wax lyrical about the joys of being a parent. I've got three children. In the last 12 months, I've had my first two grandchildren, who I hope will be the first of many. And I just tend to think human life is a wonderful thing. It's creative. It's imaginative. There's an incredible variety in cultures and civilizations and languages. And although I don't want to see the world overrun, I don't think that's very likely, um, I don't want to see it underpopulated. I, I celebrate human life. And the fact that we enjoy living in cities, for example, suggests that I'm not alone in that and that people are social and cultural and that they want to be surrounded by human life and not uh, t- to see the planet denuded of it. Yeah, well, the people who talk about overpopulation, they, they want to reduce the population, but they don't want to start with themselves, of course. So it usually amounts to they're saying some other people should not exist. And then you say, well, who and how is that going to work? And, you know, you're still there. So yeah, it's nearly always they want to, it's got a quite sinister undertone to it when you when you strip back the logic. It has, but if you're talking about the multi-millionaires, that's one thing. But what you actually find, to be fair to the anti-population element, which tends to be, you know, the ordinary anti-natalist woke type, um, actually they do have a low fertility rate themselves. So there is some consistency there. Um, but it's not one I celebrate. I don't want the world denuded of, of, of people with a variety of, of shades of opinion. So I don't want the woke liberals to breathe themselves out of existence. I'd like to persuade them to change their minds on various things. But at least I will give them the credit that on the whole, there is a, a, a clear um, correlation between those sorts of attitudes which tend to be antinatalist and having no children or small families. And the people who end up having the larger families, of course, are more conservative types, people more nationally minded and religious groups. And again, I celebrate them and their existence. But equally, I don't particularly want a world full of micro groups with very, very radically different lifestyles and beliefs. I'm not sure culture will survive particularly well that way either. Interesting. You've tempted me now with the idea of the woke breathing themselves out. So I'm, I'm rethinking as we speak. <laughs> but, uh, well, they do. They also recruit. They recruit others, of course, to their worldview. So yeah. it's not an entirely uh, hereditary phenomenon. That's true. Um, and yeah, I mean, and there's also there is a sort of philosophical antinatalism that's a bit more, you could say, valid. I, I listened to a long podcast with Sam Harris and someone once and he was the guy was an antinatalist and he made a good sort of very bleak but quite difficult to refute case but it was also kind of there's something kind of there's it's obviously very dark and so there is something creepy and immoral about it just on a gut level even if it's hard to refute philosophically he you know the idea that you, you suffering is inevitable therefore bringing someone into the world is in a sense immoral you can understand the logic but it's on a sort of layman level you just sort of go oh come on <laughs> you know what i mean it's quite hard to refute yeah. well it at least goes back it- 
I mean, they depend a lot on Schopenhauer. He's their favorite sort of 19th century philosopher. And I do love Schopenhauer, but I do think he's a philosopher you should read uh, for enrichment and contemplation, but not someone you'd wish to, to emulate. Um, and I think ultimately, however these philosophical arguments go, and, and like all philosophy, these are, you know, we're still debating what Plato was saying uh, thousands of years ago. So they're not going to resolve. Um, at any kind of logical or rational level. Ultimately, it's just a question of, do you think human life is a good thing? Do you like people? And looking back on your own life, which is the only life we experience, do you say, I wish I'd never been born? Or do you say, I'm very grateful and appreciative that I have been born? And I'm very much in that latter camp. But ultimately, if someone says, my life is a veil of tears, and I think everyone else's life is really a veil of tears, if only they were honest enough to admit it. I, don't, I think that's really a question of sentiment, outlook, temperament. Um, and it could well be that those people also breed themselves out of existence. Because there is some well, evidence has- that it's quite limited that there is a genetic predisposition to be pronatal, but it's never expressed itself because people couldn't control their fertility and then it was very normal and a huge social pressure to have families. Now, if for the first time ever, people can really choose without sticking out like a sore thumb not to have children, then an antenatal gene could start to express itself and then to okay. sort of breed itself out of the population. Interesting. Well, my life has been a veil of tears, but I'm I'm objective enough to realize that other people's isn't, and I don't I don't think everyone should be like me. I'm just a weirdo, so I I kind of discount that. But um, isn't it? I can't remember if it was you that said this or someone else, but was it, it was a lot of it based on the Malthusian idea of sort of having enough food and ideas that became obsolete that we now do have enough food. So a lot of that thinking is out of date. So Malthus was writing his first book came out in 1798, I think, and then he reissued various uh, versions of it. And he was really reacting to the Enlightenment thinkers, uh, who very much friends uh, friends and influencers of his father, who said we could get rid of poverty. And he said the poor will always always be with us, of course, as it says in the Bible. His basic idea, and it's actually a very powerful idea, is if every woman who... um, engages in reasonably regular sexual activity throughout her fertile years, on average, has six children. That's kind of where you get to. So each cohort triples. You would find, if you start with a quarter of a billion people back in the year zero, by three or four hundred, year three or four hundred, you would have had hundreds, thousands of billions of people. If you triple, triple, triple and triple every century, I mean, as the Americans say, do the math, um, you get... This wild now, why does why didn't that happen historically? The reason it didn't happen is that if war didn't get you or disease didn't get you, there was no way the world in the year five hundred could have supported and fed all these people, hundreds and thousands of billions of people. So there was a fundamental constraint, and if we don't control our fertility, Malthus said, we'll always be pushing up against that constraint, and people will be living on the edge of misery because they'll be living, they'll be breeding up to the edge of what the world can support. And the two, and Malthus, it was a very interesting model. I mean, he wrote these various versions of his essay. The first is the most parsimonious and theoretical, and then he gets into actually looking what practices do people pursue to limit their fertility, infanticide, uh, sexual practices to control your fertility before the age of contraception. But the two things, very often it's the case that a a regime is, is understood as it's starting to pass out of existence. Certainly this case. So two things that happened in the 19th century and then even more so into the 20th. First of all, our ability to feed ourselves grew exponentially. So Britain in the 19th century became industrial. Its people and other European people settled huge, vast areas of Canada, Australia and, and, and the United States. There were new forms of transport. Food could be shipped. And the idea of shipping vast quantities of grain internationally um, across oceans um, in an economic manner uh, was very much a 19th century uh, phenomenon, although, of course, it did have some precedence in Roman times over the Mediterranean. But anyway, so suddenly a whole new world of extra food opened up, the Harbour Bosch process at the beginning of the 20th century. So we've had technologically, we've, we've lifted that Malthusian cap on our ability to feed ourselves on the one hand, and then on the other hand, we have found the means to control our fertility And now it turns out, not only the means, but the will to do it in excess. 
So instead of having an ever more burgeoning population pushing against resource constraints, we've had an explosion of the available resources. And then on the other hand, we've had uh, the ability and then the, the desire to have very few children. So Malthus has been turned on his head in a sense, doubly. Yeah, interesting. The big question for me then is how we solve, if we accept the birth rate problem is real, which it seems to be, then how do we solve it? And people get very weird about this. I was at a debate recently with David Aronovich and Matt Goodwin. And one thing Aronovich said is, oh, and he wants you to have more children, as if Matt Goodwin was some sort of weird freak who was just going around forcing people to have children and knocking on their doors. It was said in a very strange way. And it was, you, you still think, well, yeah, we need to do something about it. And obviously Hungary have, have tried to do things, countries like Hungary. And you talk about the trilemma of, of ethnic continuity, economic growth and egotism, which is just a word you're using to mean the choice not to have children and to live a comfortable life in, material, in a material sense instead. So, and you say you can have two, but not all three, because if you have ethnic continuity and not many children like Japan, then you don't have economic growth. Britain's tried to go for economic growth and not have too many children. So we've lost ethnic continuity and mass immigration being too rapid for many people. So, yeah. So what is the actual solution, if any? Well, uh, you've covered a lot of ground there. I think I know David Aronovich is not comfortable with pronatalism. He he wrote a review of my last book in The Times, which I think was quite a generous um a generous review, but he did say surely the answer is not to go around being weird and trying to have people have more children, but just bring in immigrants. There's no limit to that. Um, yeah, I, read that. I don't agree with that for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, there is a response to rapid ethnic change. Um, some people like it, some people don't. And I don't think it should be a uh, matter of rigid dogma that you must like it. And if you don't, you mustn't mention it. I think there are perfectly good reasons to say that uh, uh, the, the current ethnic balance we have now or a balance we had in the past was preferable to some people. And one can't just dismiss those views. And in a lot of the world, I mean, I was in Korea in, at the end of in the middle of 2023. Um it's just taken for granted they want to retain their ethnic homogeneity. It's taken for granted in in Japan. Um, people in Tunisia have complained about mass immigration from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I was at a conference in the UAE the other day, and, and someone from Libya was saying the same thing, although I doubt anyone wants to stay in Libya. So I think it's pretty normal in human societies for people to be comfortable, or at least some people to be comfortable, with their ethnic group being the majority in their own country. So I think the idea that it's beyond the bounds, beyond the pale of acceptable um, politeness to say we don't want mass immigration and mass ethnic change. And that whilst we don't think ourselves superior or inferior, it's perfectly reasonable to say um, that a country should have some kind of ethnic continuity. It, it's up for debate. It's, it's up for discussion. I don't believe in turning it into a kind of taboo. So that's one thing I would um, sort of posit against um, David Aronovich. But the other thing is, um, well, there are two other things, actually. The first is that we can't just rely on endless mass immigration. Britain has enormously benefited from immigration from Ireland, for example, high fertility, high immigration country. And I don't know many of my what I would call white British friends or people who would identify themselves as white British who don't have an Irish granny or great grandparent. So it's very embedded. And now we've had huge immigration from Poland, but both Ireland and Poland, Ireland's got a lot richer, Poland's getting richer, and they've got much lower fertility rate now. So this idea that we can just have mass immigration forever from Ireland and Poland is obviously out the window. Fewer people and fewer des less desire to come. And that's actually spreading to more and more of the world. So it, you can't just say, and also other countries are catching up with us economically. A lot of countries we consider poor won't always be much poorer than us. So the idea that we are too busy, too self-important, too grand to have our own children, but never mind because we can ship them in from wherever we fancy to do whatever we want, I think is unrealistic. And then the second thing is also immoral. It's said, although I couldn't really find the data on this, that we have more health workers from Ghana in Britain than are working in the health sector in Ghana. So we have much better health care than the Ghanaians. Are we really right to be saying, well, we haven't got enough kids, 
to fulfill all our different tasks and jobs, um, let's just bring in some Ghanaian doctors and nurses, even if we're depriving people in Ghana. So there's sort of a biological imperialism involved in that. And I think that's morally questionable. Now, you could say, oh, we could train more. We could train more doctors. We could train more health workers. We could train more people, pay more people more money to do things like drive tankers. I don't remember a couple of years ago, there was a problem with tanker drivers and no petrol in the petrol stations and any area of the economy we can throw human resources at. The question is we can't throw them at all of them. It's a bit of a whack-a-mole. If we are losing our workforce, we can throw people at one sector or another, but only by depriving them from somewhere else. So the labor, there will be labor shortages somewhere. Of course, we could train far more people to be doctors and nurses, but then other parts of the economy would be short of labor. So my, what I'm really trying to say is that immigration mass immigration in the long term is not a practical or ethical solution. Um, so if that's not the practical or ethical solution, then the, we either go the Japanese route of having labor shortages and an endlessly declining economy and ever higher debt to GDP ratio, or we have to start producing some more of our own kids. Yeah. So immigration doesn't work as a solution to the birth rate issue because it's, well, one, people will object to ra- rapid change of mass immigration, but also their fertility rate f- seems to fall as well when they enter these countries. And then and then also they age as well and, and, and they need to be supported. Is that basically... Yeah, it's a Ponzi scheme. It has to go on and on and get bigger and bigger over the years to support the previous generations who've come here. Yeah. So, but have you ever, well, have you heard of any incentive scheme that actually works in terms of encouraging people to have children or do people just find it creepy or do they just don't do it okay so that gets on to the solutions bit so my next book which i was going to call procreate or perish but my publisher thinks it sounds too old testament so it's probably going to be called no one left (laughs) but anyway in my next book the first section is called extinctions which is about what's going on. The second is called Objections, where I try to talk about feminism and environmentalism and immigration and how these things can or can't be reconciled to um, the looming population crisis. The last section is called Solutions. So that has three parts. What can technology do for us? What can government do for us? And what can we do for ourselves? So on technology, I'm skeptical that AI is going to take away the need for labor. And I won't go into lengths here, but it is interesting that Elon Musk, on the one hand, has said that this is a global crisis, that we're not having enough kids. But on the other hand, he thinks AI will resolve it by at least the labor element. I don't think it will. I think AI will, we're always finding new technologies to effectively take over jobs that have been done traditionally. Um, but we're always creating new requirements. And it's very clear at this stage what the limits, more or less immediate limits of AI are, that they will be, they will take out a lot of jobs in certain sectors, but they can't do lots of things um, like healthcare, like fix your tap and so on. Uh, or I mean, they, they may make some healthcare more productive, but there's an awful lot of need for um, like radiology, but there's still an awful lot of need for people Um, all the way from the bottom to the top of the economic chain, um, actually doing physical things. So that's um, what, and we can get more into depth if you like, but essentially that's why I don't think technology is going to solve this problem. Government is a tricky one. I think um, governments try very hard. I think it's honest, to be honest, I do think Hungary's efforts are a bit disappointing that they haven't had more result. They put an awful lot of money into it. And they have had some results in things like raising the marriage rate, but they've got the fertility rate up from maybe 1.2 to 1.5, but it's still too low. And other countries in Eastern Europe have have got it up similarly to a level from catastrophically low to still far too low with no evidence that it will keep going up. So it's a bit disappointing. I think there are things governments can do and they can make family-friendly and child-friendly policies more core. And I also think governments can actually admit we've got an issue, which no British government has done yet. But the last section, the last chapter of this book is what can we do for ourselves? And I think 
we're too used to the idea that if there's a problem, there must be a solution and the government must have that solution. Yes, there are things government can do. But in a way, my book is an appeal over the heads of government to people to say, um, this is a real issue and that we can all do our bit. Now, doing our bit for a lot of people is having kids. Okay, fine. I'm sorry if people find that creepy. I think it's creepy to find it creepy to think kids are a wonderful thing, but there you go. Um, but the other thing is lots of us can do, like I'm now quite an active grandparent. And I think maybe by being an active grandparent and helping my kids with their kids, that will help them and encourage them to have an extra marginal child. I think we can all do quite small things like help people with buggies on the tube, think about the design of products and services, the whole range of things we can do. And I think what's really important also is icons who are family friendly. So although the Prince of Wales doesn't make a huge thing of it or campaign for pronatalism or David Beckham equally, I think the fact that you've got two men and their wives, high prestige, obviously not constrained by um, income, but nevertheless, they've chosen to have families of three and four respectively. And I think that's a great um, cultural icon in a way. And I think if more people with that kind of cultural purchase and power um, were having larger families and making something of them, what we could do is change the culture so that we're in a world where having kids is cool and people actually want to do it. They want to form families, have children and um, secure the foundations of the future. So I think a lot of it's cultural and government can probably nudge in that direction. Uh, but ultimately, um, so Israel, for example, is a country I talk about a lot. It's, got, it's a, the only developed country with a high fertility. It's got a fertility rate of three. Everywhere else in the OECD is below two. In Israel, the government doesn't do that much. I mean, it does a lot on IVF, for example, but maternity leave isn't brilliant. Um, but there is a pronatal culture. And I think if government is pushing up against an antenatal culture, it's going to have to spend an awful lot of money not getting very great results. So I think what we need is a change of culture, a change of heart, a change of priorities. Um, and, you know, that won't be achieved by one man on a soapbox publishing a book, right? So I'm not going to say that my book is the solution, but conversations like this should be part of that change in culture and priorities so that people actually say having a family is the most important thing to me. And if I can't have one in London because I can't afford it, I'll go and pursue my career somewhere else, for example. I wonder, do we know why the, the rate is higher in Israel? Is it to do with a sort of national pride that you seem to get in Israel? Is it to do with <laughs> Orthodox Judaism and, and the, the, those people tend to have more children or something like that? It's both. So if you look at the uh, fertility rate by religious group, or self-identifying. The more religious you are, the more children you have. So that's definitely part of it. But the interesting thing in Israel is even the secular elements um, have at least have a couple of kids. The most secular people still have a replacement rate, fertility rate, which Jews in America, for, secular Jews in America have a very low fertility rate. So I think there is a religious element, but there's also a national element. And I think, and I wrote about this in my first book, actually, Demographic Engineering, which was the PhD thesis that I did about 10 years or more ago with Eric Kaufman. And the, my argument there is that in conflicts, uh, it can be that one side or both end up pursuing some kind of demographic arms race, if you like. And both the Israelis and the Palestinians have had higher fertility rates than you would expect given their late rate of socioeconomic development. And I would see that's partly to do with the conflict and partly to do with a sense of insecurity, partly to do with a sense of kind of keeping up with the enemy, as it were. So I think that is an element in Israel. I obviously don't think we can replicate Israeli um, conditions in Britain. There are all sorts of things that are so different about our societies. But I think we can create a culture, nevertheless, um, where instead of having 1.5 children, maybe we have 2.5 children, and that would make an enormous difference. Yeah, that makes me think of something um, Ed Dutton said. Where he he because I'm I've been trying to figure out. Well, as a layman, I don't know, but I'm asking you why it actually is that we stop having children in wealthy countries. And Ed Dutton suggested that wealth is an evolutionary mismatch. And that we need, I don't know if that's just an observation, though, or if that's if that's just a, a cause or effect thing, but if he's just looking at what actually seems to be the case, 
he's sort of saying when we have death, death is more of a fact of life and, and people, children dying more frequently and so on. There was a natural tendency to have children where it seems to be you get to a certain level of wealth and we're sort of insulated from reality, those kind of harsh realities. We, we just naturally have less children. Is that the reason or is it cost of living? Is it feminism? Do we know the reasons? Well, social science is a, is a, a very imprecise science, even if it is most precise. So really understanding why we have low fertility is quite difficult because you come up with an answer and then you find a counterexample. So, for example, lots of people will tell you housing is too expensive and childcare is too expensive. But if you go to parts of Scotland, say, where housing is relatively cheap or Germany where housing is cheap and childcare is cheap, you have very low fertility rate. So it's not necessarily that. I do think if we say people can't afford to have children, then we have to stand back and say, hold on a minute. We're much wealthier than we used to be as societies, and we have lower fertility rates. And if you look around the world, the poorest countries have the highest fertility rates. So some countries in Africa where people are living in very dire circumstances, they're still having reasonably big families. So it's kind of paradoxical if you're saying we can't afford it. Um, what it re- you're really saying is it's just not a very high priority to up for us any any anymore, and that is kind of saying there are conditions of modernity that militate against having children. What I want to say is that we are not going back to the 1950s. We are not going to reverse the gains that feminism has made for women. We are not going to change the uh, nature of our society in that kind of way. So what can we do? And I think what we can do is try and think through how we can have a society where women have all the rights and opportunities without um, sacrificing fertility. And I don't think that should be impossible. So instead of saying it's an inevitable consequence of um, modernity, so we we either go back to the cave or, or at least to the cottage, or we give up. Um, seems to me defeatist. We have to face it that we are not going to, and I wouldn't want to, abandon uh, many of the positive things about modernity. I don't want to say we must go back to the 1950s or the 1850s. So given where we are, how can we rethink a feminism that and a multiculturalism that are in an urban lifestyle um, and even a secular lifestyle that are pronatal? I don't want to say the only way to solve and maybe I'm wrong. I mean, but I think we should give it a we should give it a go to say how can we have societies like the ones we live in now, where most people don't belong to ultra religious sects, where most people live in cities, and where women have the same opportunities as men in their careers. How can we live with that kind of society and yet reinvent the uh, desire to have children in that context? I'd rather try that than become a council of despair and say, unless we're prepared to go back to the days of Queen Victoria or Queen Anne, um, we're not. We're just going to go go down and down in number, and, and each each cohort will be smaller than the next one, and the schools will shut, and the businesses will struggle, and the government will get more indebted. I think collectively we have to try and think through how we raise the fertility rate from where we are now. Yeah. So. Yeah, you, you've mentioned we want to have a pronatal feminism, as you say there, multiculturalism and environmentalism. You talked about the environmentalism one a little bit, and you t- and the feminism one. I kind of understand what you mean that perhaps maternity care and and so on. What what do you mean by a when you say a pronatal multiculturalism? Do you just mean that it shouldn't just be pockets of of certain specific cultures that have high birth rates, where the rest have low? We should somehow find a way for everyone to have high birth rates. I suppose what I'm really saying is that we're not going back to the world of 1950 in any in any of these respects, including the ethnic respect. So we're not going to go back to a world that is overwhelmingly white British in the UK, for example. We have got a lot of ethnic minorities here and they're quite large in number. Um, but I don't want to say the answer to our labour problems and our population problems is just to become ever more multicultural Um, to have an ever more diluted um, white British element in the country. Um, But actually to say all our community, and of course you can't possibly um, advocate 
pronatalism in one community rather than another. It has to be completely equal. Um, but all of our communities should be having a replacement level of fertility. I mean, the only group in the last census to decline in absolute terms in numbers was our Afro-Caribbean population. I think that's got a lot to do with um, intermarriage and people therefore redefining themselves. But nevertheless, among Afro-Caribbeans, among uh, Hindus and Sikhs, the fertility rate is, is as low, if not lower, than for white British people. So it's a, it's a challenge for the whole of society and not just for some elements. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I think you've touched on it briefly here, and I've heard elsewhere that, that high birth rate is tied with religiosity and perhaps with being conservative, but you've, you've said that statistically that doesn't really move the dial if a few Catholics have six kids, that doesn't really do that much. Is that right? Well, the thing about um, Catholicism, so traditional Catholics, is they're very few in number, uh, those who actually have very large families. And the problem with that, well, there are two problems. First of all, I'm very happy that we have uh, varied um, religious groups in this country. We've got different religions and and a, a sort of rich mix. So I don't wish away by any means any religious groups. But um, I don't think we'll function well as a society if everyone belongs to a high commitment religious or ethnic group. I don't think, you know, that, I don't think that will work very well as a society. Those groups have their place and I welcome them. But we can't just all be living in our own little ghettos. I don't think that would work well. So that's one thing. But the other thing specifically with, with Catholics, and I don't have data on this, it's largely anecdote, is that you only really make a difference in terms of growing the population if you have a high fertility rate and a low attrition rate, by which I mean, on the one hand, you have big families, but then on the other hand, um, you retain within the community the um, most of your kids. Now, I suspect that Traditional Catholics aren't brilliantly successful at retaining within their ranks generation after generation after generation their offspring. And so um, what you'll find is, yes, they have a very high fertility rate, but within a couple of generations, those people have gone. And therefore, as a group, they don't expand uh, really over the long term. And I, so I think to have a real impact on demography you need to be like the Amish or the Haredi Jews, where on the one hand, you have a very high fertility rate, but on the other hand, you manage to keep within the bounds of your community most of those children so that you end up with, a. I mean, those kinds of populations can grow three or 4% a year. And if you, again, if you do the, the mathematics and you extrapolate, that has a really big effect. Um, but I'm not actually calling for that. And that's just, that's just a matter of fact, what moves the dial and what doesn't. But even if we did get this explosion of a, a, a Catholic, traditional Catholic community and other highly religious communities, and even if they did keep within the realms of the community most of their offspring, I think that gives a challenge of a cohesion to a society, maybe 100 or 200 years, when more secular and liberal types have bred themselves out of existence and everybody belongs to one of these high commitment religious groups. I think that will be a, a bit of a weird society and a difficult society to knit together. Yeah, interesting. Um, one thing I just wanted to quickly ask on the on the immigration issue specifically. So, so Britain's birth rates fell in 1973 below re replacement level, I believe. And I've heard um, Philip Pilkington, who you, you've worked with, say that if the fertility rate stays the same as it is now, by 2080, 38% uh, of Britain's population will be foreign born. If we want to keep the current dependency ratio stable, uh, which you can maybe explain in a minute, but but then if the fertility, fertility rates continue to fall as they seem to be and get to a South Korean level, then by 2080, over 50% will be foreign born in Britain. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so Philip and I wrote a paper on the trilemma that we've talked about already, um, trying to quantify it. So what we said is, if Britain has current fertility rates, but wants to keep the same number of workers to retirees, given that we know when people roughly when they'll be getting to retirement age, and moving the retirement age a few years makes little difference, by the way. 
um, unless you're prepared to move it to 80 or something, so or 75. So <clears throat> we know what the population pyramid like looks like. If we want the same number of workers to retirees as we got at the moment, how many people do we need to bring into the country at the current fertility rates? And then we modelled it also to say, what if our fertility rates drift down to Korean levels, which I think is very likely if you look at the attitudes of Gen Z or Gen Z, who are going to be the bulk of, of the people of fertile years quite soon, and they've already started and they're not having many children. And if that's the case, it's almost a mathematical exercise to say how many people do we need to bring in? And by 2080, it's either roughly a third or a half, depending on how our first generation immigrants. So never mind people who are uh, the children. I'm the child of immigrants. There are a lot of us around. But it's not really about ethnicity. It's just about um, the number of people we're shipping into the country just to keep the thing going. Um, whether we can even get that number of people by 2080, I would I would doubt. Um, so that's one thing we we quantified. Then the second thing we quantified is we said, okay, what if we stopped immigration, which a lot of people would like? What if we um, didn't fix our fertility rate? How bad would the dependency rate get? And then by 2080, we're kind of at Japanese levels today or worse. So a terrible shortage of people. Um, a lot, ultimately, a lot of elderly people are going to live without care because there'll be no one to care for them. And all the other problems of an economy where um, you're spending a huge amount on health care and uh, pensions. So that's the second thing we, we quantified. And then the third thing we quantified is to say, if we want to avoid this fate, if we want to avoid becoming effectively a black hole, sick because we won't have our own children, bringing in ever more numbers of people from outside, or we want to avoid being an old age home in which the state is desperately trying to tax and deploy people of working age to serve an ever-growing number of older people. If we want to avoid those two fates, where do we have to get our fertility rate up to? And the answer is, you know, if we could get it up to about two and a half, we'd be fine. Now, as a demographer, I know that's really difficult and there are no wealthy countries, no OECD members, with fertility rates above two, except Israel. So we know it's really difficult to do. But if you ask the average person, a world in which the average couple has two and a half kids, doesn't sound like, I mean, it's not Mali or Niger, is it? Or it's not, um, you know, the Amish or the Hutterites. Um, so I think we need to reimagine a world where two and a half is the norm. And where where people, I mean, when I was born, I'm a very, very late baby boomer. So I, I squeaked into the baby boom by six weeks, strictly speaking, being born in the middle of November 1964. But then we were having three children per, per couple. Um, to get to two and a half shouldn't be impossible. And that's the only way it seems to Philip Pilkington and me that we can avoid either going the Japanese model. And people often go to Japan and say, it's great, it's functioning. It isn't going to be functioning. It's, they've got built-in real problems, and the Japanese prime minister is talking about civilizational collapse. So we're only at the start of Japan's problem. We've already seen Japan wave. It's really going to struggle. So we don't want that fate. And if we don't want to be a world where we just ship in people endlessly from overseas and become an ever more anonymous and atomized society, then we are going to have to have some more kids. Yeah. So it sort of sounds like out of these three E's of ethnic continuity, economic growth and egotism, you, you sort of sound like you're going for a, a balance. You're sort of saying there's a social responsibility to try and have children. We need some immigration and, you know, we can't have but we can't have too rapid immigration because it causes various kinds of unrest and, and undesirable outcomes. So you're sort of going for maybe a balance and we've been... No, I'm not going for a balance. Oh. I'm going, okay. I, I accept we need some immigration because it's 20 years before babies born today are going to work in their way into the workforce. And I accept that we are going to age somewhat and continue to age somewhat as a society. I accept those two things. But what I would really like is for them not to be necessary because we had had more children. And what I would like now is for us to put in place the conditions that we're not facing an even starker set of choices in 20 years because we now start having the children we need. 
So it's very clear to me the right answer is not some nice balance between the three. The right answer is that we have enough young people, we have enough children that we can feed our own economy without needing mass immigration and that we keep the economy on the rails and that we don't end up in a Japanese style very sick dependency ratio. So although I can see where we are as a starting point, and I know what the reality is, and if you suddenly stopped immigration tomorrow, there would be serious consequences for the labor force. Nevertheless, what I'm trying to say, I remember I had this conversation with Matt Goodwin, actually, who I know has very strong views on, on immigration, which I very much sympathize with him. But I said to him, the first time an anti-immigration voter is faced with no one in the old age home to look after mum or no one to fix the tap or the roof. In other words, when we start confronting the shortages of labour that a zero immigration policy would lead to, I'm not suggesting Matt saying we should have one, but the I think the anti-immigration sentiment will crumble when people realise what zero immigration means uh, in terms of labour shortages. And so what I'm trying to say is, Whatever you want by way of immigration now, and whatever we need, and whatever those um, sectors of the economy are where it's required, if we don't now start, it's already really late, but if we don't don't now start putting in place the uh, higher fertility, if we don't now start having the kids to go into the workforce in 20, 25 years' time, there's not even a light at the end of the tunnel. There's just this stark choice between an ever more uh, uncohesive, uh, fragmented and atomized society made up of very different ethnic groups and up to half the population coming from overseas, or um, real labor shortages and the Japanese sort of problem. So I'm not saying I've got all the answers. I just think, and even the answers I do have are quite for the long term. But I'm trying to say if we don't start putting those things in place now, uh, we, we'll we just be facing this dilemma forever. They, getting the fertility rate up won't fix the thing for a long time. We're going to have to wrestle with that. But I, I don't want some happy medium. I want a fertility rate of two to three. So that if we want immigration, we can have, we don't need to have it to support our economy. And that we can actually keep on having a relatively buoyant economy and not face the Japanese dilemma of, of eternal shrinkage. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad we got that clear. It, it, do you see then any evidence that, well, in Britain that we're tackling either of these? And do you, do you see, as, firstly, there's the immigration issue. On In Europe, they seem to be grasping a bit more, they're getting pretty tough on it in Denmark, France, Holland, Sweden. We seem a bit behind. We're still worrying about something Swella Bravman said, well, now she's gone, but, you know, we seem very squeamish about it. And then on the fertility question, do you see any... Any evidence that politicians have grasped this in, in this country? Okay, well, to start with our squeamish, and I think part of the problem is our party system and our first-past-the-post system, which has many great strengths. And I'm a child of the Thatcher years. I was 14 when she came to power, and I was quite political back even then. Um, and I was really pleased that you had a government with, I think the majority was 40, you had a government, 43 or something, you had a government that could get on with it, do it, and then either get slung out for being a disaster or get re-elected. I like the first post-opposed system, or I did then. The limits it has is that it's very hard for a a party further to the right to get going. Um, And so things you've seen in places like, um, uh, well, the other countries of Europe, almost all of them, um, Holland, for example, Italy, um, are more difficult to do in this country. although clearly reform is trying. So I think that's part of the problem. In terms of the squeamishness in the national debate, um, I think we need to get over that. And I think I'm playing my little part. Lots of people, you know, and I, sometimes I read the comments on podcasts I've done, and, so, and there are a lot of people sort of from the right, you might say, who say, oh, he's not going far enough, he's too squeamish. I think we need to move the Overton window, as it were, that sort of uh, slightly corny phrase. And and we all need to push a bit at saying, well, actually, you know, I'm the child of immigrants. I don't have a drop of Anglo-Saxon uh, origin, but I'm, I actually like the country as it, as it was and as it is now, perhaps. I don't want to live in a country that is just a, a complete mix of people from all over the world with no sense of belonging and no sense of heritage and no sense of attachment 
to this country. I think immigration is fine if it's at a reasonable pace and people like my own parents are brought in and, and people like me of first generation immigrants come to have complete affiliation with the country. I think that's really difficult to do when you have a million gross immigrants a year. So uh, maybe half a million, 600,000 net. So that's one that I hope answers that question. Um, I think we all have to push that window ourselves a bit. And I hope I'm doing my bit, um, which doesn't mean I'm anti-immigrant um, or that I'm anti-immigration. It just means I don't want, I don't think immigration is the answer to all our demographic problems and it should be unlimited. In terms of are we moving forward in the debate on demography, I think almost not at all. So that we have never had a government in this country that has acknowledged that we have a demographic issue. After 50 years of sub-replacement fertility, no government has ever had a demographic policy. And I think people still find it creepy, to use your words. And I think we've got to get beyond it. In terms of the politicians who are talking about it, I mean, the wonderful Miriam Cates, God bless her, she's very courageous. But even Miriam, I heard saying on Radio 4 the other day, actually, um, you know, I think she, someone said, aren't you scared to be talking about this? And she said, yes, I am. But we have to talk about it. Well, she's obviously very courageous. I'm not a politician, so I could say what I like. The worst case is nobody publishes me or wants me on their podcast, which I think I can live with. Um, but the idea that a politician like Miriam feels she has to be courageous to say this. And she and Philip and a couple of others were at an event, um, a Centre for Social Justice that I attended. Philip was speaking about our paper. And um, there was a Labour MP invited to talk about this issue. And she was more or less intimidated um, and not able to come. So I think it's absolutely crazy that we're still in a place where the government never talks about it and a politician on the relative fringes needs to, I mean, Miriam is sticking her neck out. But we're, we're really, really, it's really late in terms of 50 years of sub-replacement fertility, a lack of workers, and a declining dependency ratio. It's really late in those terms. But in terms of where the debate is, we barely got going, which is what I'm trying to do and what my next book um, will hopefully do. And hopefully it will get a lot of pushback and a lot of um, air and people will start talking about it. But it, it's really very urgent. And I am concerned by how late it is in the day, given our demography, and yet how we barely, you know, I'm banging on about it, and a few people are, but not nearly enough of us, and certainly not the government. Yeah, it is strange. I mean, why should, I, mean, I can understand why people are a bit squeamish about immigration. I can understand why they might be, but, but fertility, you'd think that, and replacing, and you know, having enough people and to sustain our country, you'd think would be a pretty obvious thing. We're more comfortable saying it's happening in Japan or Korea, but we're not very comfortable saying it's happening here. Quite odd. Yeah, and like you well, say, it's very late. I think people are very scared of the idea that anyone would be forced to have children or that you would take away people's yeah. access, say, to contraception, which is ridiculous. I mean, I would rather see humanity wane to zero than people being forced to have children. So, I mean, that's a horrendous idea, but nobody has remotely suggested. I could imagine the Chinese doing it eventually. And it has been pointed out to me that China has a very high abortion rate. So if the government wants turn it on its head, which is already partly done on, on uh, the one-child policy and have more children, which it now desperately wants, it could clamp down on abortion. Now, our debate on abortion in Britain is very limited. Um, people talk about fairly small changes. There's no serious political discussion about ending abortion in this country. And anyway, even if you think that would be a good thing or a bad thing, I think it will have very little effect on fertility rates because people would take more precautions. So I don't want to raise the fertility rate, and I don't know anyone who does, by changing the abortion laws, whatever the virtues of the abort changing abortion laws are or not. And I certainly don't want to change the fertility rate by making contraception unavailable. And that's ridiculous. That that was that was communism under charity. You know, things communists, far left people do that most of us wouldn't dream of. So I think people are a bit scared that we'll go the Ceausescu route, although, of course, they'd say it was far right, but really it's far left, um, of forcing people to have children to meet some kind of national plan. I mean, that is horrendous. Um, and people also feel it's pushing back on on feminism. But um, 
as I say, I, I, I've got three children, two daughters. Both have had children in their 20s, late 20s, mid to late 20s, started their families. Both have fantastic educations and pursuing great careers. And that's what I would want for every all those opportunities for everyone, man or woman or whatever. So um, it's not about, we've got to keep saying it's not about rolling that back. Um, and that's a bit of a defensive to have to keep saying that, but it's kind of obvious. But I think that's what makes people nervous. And then you endlessly get people talking about the handmaiden's tale and all that kind of stuff. The answer is, do we want to carry on as a civilization, as a society, as a culture? Do we want to keep the economy moving? Uh, do we want to cease relying on other people having children on our behalf and shipping them in willy-nilly? And if we do, then how can we do that in a way that's consistent with our values of 2024? And, you know, I keep on saying that till I'm blue in the face. But I think what makes people nervous is the thought of, of Handmaiden's Tale or goodness knows what crazy fantasies they have. Yeah, that makes sense. That probably is what they're thinking. Although there was that video going around, wasn't there, with the electronic, it wasn't a real video, but it was the electronic rooms. Maybe they think we're going to solve it by sort of artificially growing people in, in some sort of matrix style. I don't know. I've got no idea. Well, what, that's what itself a very interesting debate. So within pronatalism, there are people who are very into the technology and those who are opposed to it, probably more than we have time to discuss in any detail today. I, I'm all in favour. I don't have a problem with IVF or frozen eggs. Um, but I do think that we have to be very careful if we think those are the solution, because what they will tend to do is they, they tend to pe put people into a sense of false security who then think, well, I can leave it and leave it and leave it and leave it. And then when they do leave it, they leave it too late. And very often they can't have children and the technology doesn't deliver. So I think we have to be careful with, with the technology. Um, I certainly believe we should make it available and help people who can't have children to have them. But I think we have to handle it with care. And one of the things we should be doing, for example, something that Miriam Cates was talking about at a, a dinner I went to, and she's an ex-biology teacher, so she should know about this. Um, people don't understand how rapidly their fertility falls off in their mid-30s. And if people understood that, if that were part of biology lessons, for example, as they model their lives, as they think about their future, they would understand that. So just getting that understanding into people's minds itself, I think, would help. Yeah, I think a lot of women have been sort of lied to by the culture about that. And that is very unfortunate. Um, just then, maybe to end, maybe a wider question. Just I sometimes end by saying, how, how do we win the culture war? Which which suggests a few things. One, that there is a war. And two, that we're on the same side. And it, there's a lot of assumptions in there. Do you have any wider thoughts on this culture war and will woke end and, and can we can we win that that whatever this culture war is? Well, in terms of me and the culture war, I feel I'm just manning a very small part of the front. So I don't tend to get that involved in the wider debate, partly because I don't think anyone else is not many people are talking about the subject that I'm talking about. I'm not even sure it is or should be part of the culture war, but it ends up being part of the culture war because the sort of people who get really offended and feel unsafe when people start talking about it are the same sort of people who engage in the culture war and other things. So I think in terms of the culture, I don't have a, a, a solution to, to how to win it. Um, and there's a lot I see in the younger generation that alarms me. Um, but I do, we were talking earlier about how we were both at the art conference. I think it was a good conference. But I think one of the most positive things about it that is very much in that arc mentality is we've got to remember what we're standing for and not just what we're against. And what we're standing for is an extraordinary tradition of politics and culture that has been created in the Western world that is hugely attractive to people from all over the world and that we should be very proud of. I mean, personally, I am a classical music fanatic. And when I think of the amazing ability of people in European civilization to create this extraordinary, amazing music, whether you're talking about the things I particularly listening to at the moment, the late Beethoven string quartets and the Bruckner symphonies, the ability of a civilization to create this which is available to everyone, regardless of where they live, regardless of their culture. And it's interesting, I think, that classical music is particularly offensive to the woke. 
Uh, but I think if more people could understand the joys of what has been created by Western civilization, I don't expect everybody to get into Bruckner symphonies. I appreciate I'm, I'm sort of painting myself into the corner of a bit of a, a cultural elitist. And uh, uh, But I wish I wasn't. I wish more people would appreciate it. But all the extraordinary things that we've created culturally. And then the other thing, and I think this is a problem with the woke, is that they take a huge amount of the benefits of Western civilization for granted. They want to take a flight. They want treatment for their kids in hospital. Whatever it is, they are living off the capital which Western civilization has created. Now, okay, it's been very important Western civilization wasn't created in a vacuum, that it had roots in in Greek and and the Greek civilization, and, and a lot of this was carried by the Arabs, but that's wonderful. It's okay, it's a universal civilization, which has been particularly developed over the last two, three, four, five hundred years in Europe and by Europeans. But let it go global, let everyone participate. But I, the one thing I would say to woke people is stop being hypocritical in living off this, whether it's in terms of the methods of transport, the high standards of living, the medical care, it's supporting you in everyday life. Even if you can't get into the late Beethoven string quartets and the Bruckner symphonies, just bear in mind how the incredible genius of this civilization and its political genius that it's created um, societies in which we can go about our business uh, in relative security and safely and our voices are heard and we're free to exchange ideas. Stop living off that capital while trashing it at the same time. Yeah, I think you might be waiting a while if you want woke people to stop being hypocritical, but uh, <laughs> but I take the point. Well made. All right, brilliant stuff. Thanks so much, Paul. Where can people find you? Well, I am now on Twitter. I've started, or X, but I don't use it very much. Um, if you put my name into Google or any other search engine, you'll find my website. And on that website, I put all my podcasts, articles, links to my books and so on. Okay. Brilliant. And the new book's going to be called, well, possibly now No One Left instead of Procreate or Perish. Yeah, I think so. Okay. And hopefully out in June or September. All right, brilliant. Well, thanks so much for doing the show. Thank you. Thank you.